turn in our Bibles to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, where the Samaritan woman asked Jesus, where is the proper place to worship? And Jesus corrects her on her ideas, but then looks forward also to our worship today. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city in Samaria which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Then said the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, Thou wouldst have asked of him that he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But that the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go call thy husband, and come thither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast said well, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. And that saidst thou truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship Ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. 
But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. So far the reading of God's inspired, infallible word. Drawing from that word, we have the teaching of the catechism. In this third section of the catechism, which is dealing with gratitude. And that gratitude is shown by obedience to God's law. Lord's Day 35. What doth God require in the second commandment? That we in no wise represent God by images nor worship him in any other way than he has commanded in his word. Question 97. Are images then not at all to be made? Answer, God neither can nor may be represented by any means. But as to creatures, though they be represented, yet God forbids to make or to have any resemblance of them, either in order to worship them or to serve God by them. Question 98. But may not images be tolerated in the churches as books to the laity? Answer, no. For we must not pretend to be wiser than God, who will have his people taught, not with dumb images, but by the lively preaching of the word. May God bless the preaching of the word to that end, that we may know how to worship our God. Among the different representative groups of the Church of Jesus Christ, there is a difference of opinion on how the commandments are to be divided in, by ten. Roman Catholics and Lutherans, following the precedent set by Augustine, incorporate the second commandment into the first commandment. And then in order to still have ten commandments, they divide the tenth commandment. Reformed churches, in agreement with the Jews, maintain that the distinctive character of the second commandment is different from the first commandment. We have here a boundary of how we worship. The first commandment tells us who we worship. The second commandment tells us how we are to worship. Now, perhaps you say, well, do we still need this today? I mean, yes, okay. Over against the Roman Catholic Church with their different images, with bowing down, worshiping the bread and the wine and the Lord's Supper, 
It's understandable. How do we worship? Does this still apply for us? And the answer is yes. Worship wars continue to rage within the church. So in many churches, they have two different kind of worship services. They have what they call the traditional worship service and the contemporary worship service. Leaving it up to God's people how they want to worship. In the old ways or in new ways that are continually being developed. We need to hear this commandment. Because at times there are some of our people too that look away from the old way of worship that we have to new contemporary kind of worship. They say it's more invigorating. What it is is a matter of will worship. The question comes to the, in those churches where they have two different kind of worship services, what strikes your fancy? Which way is new for you and maybe you can express yourself in different ways? Or instead of long monologue sermons, we can watch people dancing, have films, a lot more songs, praise choruses. Do you tire of God's worship as we've had it here in our churches? What we call a prescribed worship. Prescribed not by ourselves. We don't determine how to worship God. But God determines how he will be worshipped, doesn't he? This is not new. This different ways of seeking to worship God, that's not new. Think, boys and girls, way back to Cain. He says, I will bring to God the kind of sacrifice that I want to bring. The best fruits of my garden or of my field. God should be happy with that. Or as I mentioned already, after God had spoken his law to the people, and God was in heaven, uh, up on the mountain with Moses, Writing down that law on those tablets of stone down there at the bottom of the mountain, the people said, we want to have someone, something to see when we worship. And they made a golden calf. Or another example of strange worship, Nadab and Abihu. Rather than following the prescribed way of worship that is taking hot coals from the burnt offering altar in order to light the incense, they brought strange fire. They didn't want to bother to go to that altar of the burnt offering with a sacrifice on it. Or we think of King Saul. He's waiting for David and he wants to go to battle and he says, I will I will bring, make the sacrifice for God's people. Or still one more example from the Old Testament. David, when he transfers the ark, or tries to transfer the ark to Jerusalem on a cart driven by oxen, and Uzzah puts out his hand because as the oxen stumble, 
the ark is shaking there in that cart. And God was displeased and struck Uzzah dead. And David was afraid. We need to be warned about worship in which one seeks to serve God in a carnal, visible, and sensual manner. So the theme of my sermon is prescribed worship in God's law, namely the second commandment. You and I who are a kingdom of priests, how will we worship? God sets a boundary. You worship me as I prescribe for you. Then I will be pleased. So notice with me in the first place the character of worship. Notice, second of all, the reason for such worship. And then thirdly, the sanction of proper worship. That is, that which encourages us in our life. What is the character of our worship? And notice, first of all, what is not prohibited. Question 97 tells us that yes, Creatures may be represented. Moses made that serpent of brass for the Israelites to look to when the fiery serpents were killing many of them. Or think a moment of King Solomon's temple with the gold plastered on it represented with flowers, with pomegranates, with palm trees, with oxen, with lions, and even representations of angels. You see, Christianity is not at variance with true art, or with photography, or with painting, or with sculpture. There have been groups of Christians that say no images at all, they don't want their pictures taken, they don't want any glass windows, stained glass windows in their churches, make it just as plain as possible, even in our own churches. There was, there was a anger and position taken that we shouldn't have any kind of cross at all in the church because they said that's making an image and the reformed church says no when we dealt with that in our history no that is a symbol and of anyone that should have a right to the symbol of the cross it's believers in Jesus Christ who rejoice that he went to the cross for our sins the second commandment does not forbid any images. You may have images, sculptures, arts, but not to worship God. Second of all, the second commandment does not forbid what the first commandment has already prohibited. Now there is a very close relationship between the first and the second commandment because when God's people try to worship God in a wrong manner, making images of the unseen God, 
they are tempted to go away from the worship of the true God through an image to the worship of that very image itself. God forbids worship that uses creaturely images in order to know and to worship the true God. Whether those be images be material things or whether those images are even images in our own minds. God wants his people to adore, to trust, to submit in their mind, to bow down and serve him in reverence. God wants them not only then to adore and to trust and submit to him and serve him, but bow down themselves in a proper way, humble themselves before the majesty of the God. So what? What is the proper form of worship? And the answer simply is, worship God in the way that he commands in his word. And that worship that God commands in his word excludes image worship. That is, worshiping the true God using images, whether it be physical images. At the time when the catechism was written, of course, in the church, there would be crosses with a Jesus hanging on it. Now, while Jesus did have a physical body, First of all, we don't have a picture of what he looked like. Quite often those images of Jesus in churches are almost like Dutch people. White skin. Jesus was a Jew. But more than that, a form of Jesus hanging on the cross does not portray the victorious Savior who, yes, died on the cross and conquered sin and Satan and death and rose again the third day. We do not worship Jesus Christ in the bread and the wine. They are just plain bread and wine. They point to a spiritual reality. But we don't worship the bread and the wine. Others... The church becomes all important. Talk to a man nearing 90 years old, and he said, I don't go to church anymore. I stay home instead. What? I don't hear anything. There's not a lively preaching of the word anymore. There's just dances, there's films, there's songs, little homilies. I said, well, man... What are you doing there then? If the worship is that bad, why are you a member still there? Why don't you go to a church where there is the lively preaching of the word? Ah, he says, yeah, but that church, that's the church that I was baptized in. That's the church that I was married in. That's the church that I'm going to be buried in. The church building became an image of his worship, even though he wouldn't go there because there was not proper preaching. But forbidden is not only those physical things, 
But forbidden is also mental images that are not according to Scripture. Because those mental images quite often also limit God to a creature. So that God in the image of the person is a kindly old gentleman who gives you whatever you need and never reprimands you. Or in other worship where Jesus Christ is portrayed as a beggar. Begging that he wants to save you if only you are willing. If you will open your heart. That is not our God. And that's not our Christ. What is proper? Well, excluded still from proper worship is what we call self-willed religion. I'm going to do what pleases me. I'm going to worship God in a way that the culture that we live in determines how we worship. So that rather than having the lively preaching of the word, which this commandment ends with in this catechism, Lord's Day, little nuggets are given. Little nuggets that we can take with us. Kind of like the fast food service. Preacher, don't preach too long. Have a short little sermon. We want to be in. We want to be out just as if we were at McDonald's. Easy religion. Don't demand too much of me. Don't step on my toes. Just let me feel good about myself. What is necessary in proper worship of our God? It must be spiritual in character. Jesus says to the disciples there and to the woman at the well, God is spirit. They who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? Spiritual. Not just the outward forms of worship. We get ourselves dressed, we drive to church, we sit there in church, we fold our hands, we close our eyes, we listen for a little while, and then we go home again and everything continues as it was. But rather God's people come hungry and thirsty for God's word. They prepare themselves for that service so that they are awake and alert and eager to hear what the Spirit has to say. Sincere, it comes from the heart. The songs just don't tumble off the lips. But from the heart, adoration and praise. From the heart, we want to hear what God has to hear, say to us. From the heart, we want to give our offerings. It must be spiritual worship. It must be also true worship. There's a lot of sincere folk that want to worship, but being sincere isn't enough, is it? It has to be in truth. We don't try to have the word of God tell us what we want to hear that makes us feel at home. We don't worship the means itself. The means are only a way for us to fall down and worship our God in truth. 
It's not to make us secure in what we're doing, to serve our ends, to be happy, to be rich. No, God wants us knowingly, willingly, from the heart, bending our knees, the result of our submission to him, full of adoration, vocal in our songs and in our prayers, issuing from souls that are lifting themselves up before our God. We read in Isaiah chapter 57 these words. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell on the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and a humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Heart worship. Beholding God as he reveals himself in his word. Worshiping God as he has revealed himself in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. What a contrast there is between worship. If we go to Psalm 51, we read there in verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Over against just formal worship, going through the motions, God says in that same chapter of Isaiah 50, uh, of Psalm 51, for thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offerings. No, not outward worship, but within. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O oh God, thou art not despised. We don't dispense with God's form of worship, the way we worship in the ear of the Spirit, but rather by the Spirit we are enabled to worship God in the way that he wants to be worshipped. We come together, proper worship is God's people coming together on Sundays so that we collectively sing our praises, we collectively hear the word of God, we unite our voices in song and praise. In an age in which it's very easy just to sit at home and listen perhaps to even the very good sermons on sermon audio. Sermon audio is a good thing. 
for those who are sick and cannot come to church. Or sermon audio is a good way to worship God if one is too old or by pain or something else cannot come. But it may not replace the communal worship of God with his people. We need to teach our children that. In an age in which churches that used to have always two worship services, morning and evening, many or even most of the churches in those denominations now have only one worship service. Why? Why? Because, well, okay, let's go to church if we have to, but we want to get home in time so that then we can either eat out or we can go golfing, we can go boating, we can do our own kind of thing. Even as Israel, when God came down to speak to them, every family from there standing by the door of their tent, facing the tent of meeting or the tabernacle, they worship God together as a community. And we need to hear that. Boys and girls, teenagers, hear that. It's not just your folks or your grandparents who said, yes, it's good that we have two worship services on Sunday. It's good for us. One of the reasons why we have two worship services on Sunday is so that the whole word of God may be, and the whole counsel of God may be heard as we go through the catechism in one of the sermons and a free text in the other sermon. We want to begin the day communally in worship, and we want to end the day communally in worship. So coming together then as God's people, what is the proper form of worship? What does it include? And here's a phrase that I want you to remember, the regulative principle of worship. The regulative principle of worship. What that word means, that phrase means, is we do not worship as we see fit what is pleasing to our flesh, but we worship God in how he has prescribed that we worship him. And there's four elements in that. There is, first of all, the reading of Scripture. The word of God opened up, read, and then explained and carefully applied. How important is that? Most of our worship service is in that hearing of the word of God. And in hearing the word of God, then we come to him in prayer. Because the proper worship of God, when we hear him and we hear of who he is, what he has done, we, our hearts are filled with adoration and we come in our prayers with that adoration of God. And we come with a confession that we're not worthy of it of ourselves, that we are sinners who need to be saved. <clears throat> and we come with thanks in our prayers. Thanks for all the blessings, physical and spiritual, that he's given to us. And we come also with supplication. We recognize our need for him. And we therefore intercede for others. And we pray for our own needs also. What is proper worship? It is scripture and the preaching of it. 
It is prayers that are acceptable to God. Thirdly, it is adoration with singing. God has given us lips and tongues to speak of his wonder and his greatness and his glory. He has given us songs, hasn't he? A whole book in the Bible of songs that God himself gives us to sing in the singing of the Psalms. And that is why in our churches, in our worship services, we don't have special music. You say, what's wrong with that? Is someone else going to sing God's praises for us and we silently listen? Or in our worship services, are we each commanded? When we hear his voice, we break forth from our hearts with our own lips and we sing his praises together. We don't have choirs in our worship services to sing the praises of God. God's people want to sing those songs together. And fourthly, the scripture and the preaching of the scripture, heartfelt prayer, songs from our lips and from our tongues, and fourthly, the giving of our gifts. The giving of our gifts because we love the Lord, we love his kingdom, and we want that kingdom to prosper. Whether it's in our own building as a, and as a church, or whether it be with saints far across the world, even as this morning. Poor saints in the Philippines who need God's help through us for their daily needs. And that's not a new thing. Paul writes there to the churches of Galatia and the Corinthians, don't fall behind in your collection for the poor. Those churches, they wanted to help the poor saints that were over there in Jerusalem. He says, that was your desire. Now don't fall behind it, but rather on the first day of the week, when you come together, as you purpose in your heart, cheerfully give those gifts for God's kingdom. Some churches don't have an offering in the middle of their worship service. They'll have baskets on the way out that you can drop your money in. I'm thankful we don't do that. I'm thankful that as part of our worship service, this fourth characteristic of proper worship is in thankfulness for what God has done for us, a love for his kingdom, our worship is cheerfully giving our gifts for the cause of the kingdom. Formal worship. Formal worship in public. So we come together as God's saints, together to hear his word, to sing his praises, to give our gifts, to pray for one another. We do it together. What a privilege. Congregational worship, beloved, is obligation. God commands it of his people. But it's also, hopefully, as Isaiah says, a delight. Isaiah 58. A delight for God's people. Do you look forward to Sundays? Boys and girls, do you look forward to Sundays? Or, uh, hey, dad and mom say I have to come. 
Do you prepare for it? Are you enthusiastic about it? We get to meet again with our God. He speaks to us and we're able to respond. Beautiful dialogue. A dialogue between God and his bride, the church, his people. Doing it with our children. How thankful I am that in our churches we don't have a children's church service. That is, the children all sent away so they can color their pictures, hear a little story. But you and I are able to sit down in worship with our children, with our grandchildren, with our little ones, together to hear the word of God. But our worship is not only publicly here together as a congregation when we gather, but there's also that family worship. How important is that in your lives, in your homes? Do you gather around the table or in the evening to hear God's word, explain God's word, perhaps to sing some praises together as a family and come in prayer, the father as the head of the home leading his wife and his children in that worship? There is public worship, there's family worship, and beloved, there is, thirdly, private worship where we, in our own little closets, not to be seen by others, not to even be heard by others, but one-on-one -on -one with our God, adoring Him, praising Him, reading His Word, meditating upon that Word, and praying to Him, saying, Thou art my God, O God of grace, and earnestly I seek thy face, my heart cries out to thee. That's the character of worship. Notice with me, second of all then, the reason of our worship. Why do we worship this way? The catechism says, God neither can nor may be represented by any means. Deuteronomy 4, verse 15. Take ye therefore good heed to yourselves. For ye saw no manner or form on the day Jehovah spoke unto you in Horeb out of the midst of fire. You see, God's people there, Israel, they said, well, Moses is up on their mountain. We can't see God. And Moses isn't even here. Give us something, something to draw our attention so that we may worship God. God cannot be seen with the naked eye because he is spirit. We may not represent God for anything that we would use would be from our own collective experience as creatures. Even Moses up there on the mountain. God says, I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. And I'm going to hide you behind my hands because you cannot see my face. But you will see my back parts as I pass by. The glory of our God is so great. So, the reason for the regulative principle of worship, God is spirit. 
Not God is a spirit like the angels. The angels also are spirits, but they are creatures, aren't they? God is distinctive from that whole material and physical world that he made. There's a distinction, isn't there? An important distinction between the creator and the creature. God is spirit. What that implies, beloved, is that God has a personality. He is self-existent. He is a self-conscious being who thinks, who feels, who wills. And it's not the case that we have to find God, but God finds us and God reveals himself to us. He reveals in his word that he is the triune God. He reveals to us his own life, doesn't he? What is the life of God like? It's a family life where God the Father loves his Son in the Spirit. And the Son loves the Father in the Spirit. Fellowship and friendship. Working together. God shares that life with us as people. And as we read from Isaiah, although God is high, highly exalted above the whole earth, yet he reveals himself and comes down into this world and particularly to his people. Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus saith the Lord, the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite. What we're talking about here is God's transcendence. There's no one like our God, but also God's imminence. Never, never are we all by ourselves. No matter what trial or difficulty or valley we walk through, a valley of darkness, thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Psalm 99, verse 5, exalt ye Jehovah our God and worship at his footstool. So why do we have this prescribed worship? Because who God is he is spirit. He is altogether lovely. And it demands then the best kind of worship possible. It demands the worship that he demands. Second reason for our worship is found in the nature of man, isn't it? For there can be no worship except there is some relation between God and man. And that worship between God and man is an intimate fellowship. That's how God created us. Genesis 1 verse 26. We were made in God's image. That means that you and I could know God. It means that you and I from our hearts could love God and serve him. That is really the final purpose of creation, isn't it? Not merely our life here on earth, but it is in our life on earth that we bow before our God, we love him and serve him with our lives. 
That's the way God created us. And yes, from that lovely creation, man fell, didn't he? The canons of Dort speak of man's understanding, his heart, his will, his affections. The whole man was holy, and all those things were turned to the opposite, weren't they? Light became darkness. Knowledge became ignorance. Holiness was turned into ugliness, ungodliness. In the fall, we forfeited those excellent gifts. Revolting against God, Adam and Eve, by the instigation of the devil and his own free will, became blind in his mind. Horrible darkness, vanity, perverseness of nature, wickedness, rebelliousness, obdurant in heart and will, in all of our affections impure. Yes, that's the awful story of the fall and of our sinful nature. Sin brings alienation, depravity, and spiritual death. But sin did not annihilate man's need for God. And that's why Romans 1, God reveals himself to all creatures. He is the God. Everyone can see his power and his glory. But apart from Christ Jesus, they will not bow down before him. Oh, don't think for a moment, beloved, that our sin in Adam and Eve caught God unawares. God planned the way of sin in order to show his wonderful grace, didn't he? In his beloved son, Jesus Christ. For it is in Jesus Christ that God's image is renewed in us in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives. God not only revealed himself, but restored you and me as his people. Romans 8, verse 29, for whom he foreknew. That word foreknew does not mean in the Armenian sense, God knew beforehand what we're going to do, but that word foreknow means as Adam knew his wife, God loved us. For whom he loved beforehand, he also foreordained to be conformed to the image of his son. That Christ might be the firstborn among many brethren. Through Christ, we have received our adoption as God's sons and daughters. So that our hearts now cry out in our worship and in our lives, Abba. Father, by that spirit we are renewed in our spirits and in the knowledge of God. And you and I partake of that divine nature. We are those who now love his righteousness. We desire to live in holiness for him. Yes, it is that renewed image of God that is fostered and strengthened by proper form of worship. That's the means that we grow in Christ Jesus. We grow as children of God, sons and daughters, reflecting more and more his light and his glory. Looking forward. Looking forward to the day of our own perfect restoration 
unto the praise of his glory. Now already born again from above, but now yet still with sin. Receiving the sunshine and the rain of God's word and sacraments, our life comes to conversion, doesn't it? And we bear the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. Receiving the sunshine of God's Word, you and I are taught to turn away from our sins, to turn to God, to turn to His commandments, and to sing in the Psalter that song, Oh, how love I thy word. Isaiah 5, verse 1, we are commanded, Therefore, be ye imitators of God. Or Matthew 5, verse 48, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Is that your desire that you grow in God's grace under the preaching of the word, the lively preaching of the word? That you're involved in that worship, then singing your praises, giving of your gifts, and calling upon him in prayer? Proper worship. Are we sinners able to bring that proper worship? And the answer is yes. It is possible for God's people to bring that kind of worship because God, by his Spirit, enables us. He gives us hearts that want to please God, that want to call upon God, that want to hear God. Hearts that want to sing his praises. Proper worship is commanded by our God. It's our obligation but it's also our delight. How wonderful is our communal worship. Desired by God's people. Delighting in coming with fellow saints. To hear God's word. To sing his praises. To give our offerings. And to pray. Notice with me thirdly then the sanction of that worship. The catechism says sanction. What that means is that which induces, that which encourages the observance of this law. And what is it that sanctions, that encourages, that induces that observation of God's law of worshiping properly? We find it in the commandment. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Lord, that's my name. And my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. God is God. That means we have to be obedient to him. He's not like an indulgent father, Eli. Poor righteous Eli, he knew that his sins were doing sin, but he did not correct them as he should have. 
but he indulged them with the terrible things that they were doing of the worship of God at the tabernacle. God is a jealous God. What does that mean? Jealousy often in us, when we use it, means we're envious of others. We're filled with envy. And that's always bad, isn't it? But when we speak of the jealousy of God, we must do so in the relationship of a man with a wife. As husbands, would you tolerate your wife flirting with other men or other men flirting with her and taking liberties with her? And the answer is, of course not. If you really love that person, you want that person to be devoted back to you just as you are with them. Beloved, that is our God. Not serving other gods, first commandment. Not making false images, creaturely images to worship God through. Not self-willed worship. God wants us as his people to worship him as he commands us. How wonderful that he tells us how to. He doesn't leave us to ourselves. What do I think is nice? What do I think would please God? What, what pleases my sinful nature? No. Jealousy of God shows itself. It shows itself in loving kindness to those who love him, but it also shows itself in a visitation of iniquity on those of hatred on those who despise or hate him. Beloved, the second commandment encourages us to enforces us, encourages us to obedience. And it does that by way of reward, but also by the threat of punishment. What a punishment of God to those Israelites. He was almost going to say, I'm going to start all over again. I'm going to destroy them all. God was angry at that worship at Sinai. God was angry there at Uzzah, who dared to reach out with his hand and touch the Ark of the Covenant which was supposed to be carried only on poles between the Levites. And what is that punishment? To the third and the fourth generation of them that hate me. Third and fourth generation. As we read in Ezekiel 18, the son shall not bear the iniquity of the father. That's not the case. But rather, even as a good tree brings forth good fruit, a bad tree brings forth evil fruit. How is that possible? Parents, if you are not regular in your worship service on Sunday morning and Sunday evening, what do you think your children are going to do if you take off for holidays, spend the day in other ways? Children are watching. If you are oncers to worship service on Sunday, your children will be nuncers. That means they won't go at all, except maybe on the holidays. It's been proven. There is this threat then. The threat of God, a jealous God for his people. 
he will punish to the third and the fourth generations those who hate him. But there's also the glorious promise that sanctions or that encourages, that induces us to proper worship, isn't there? Because over against his anger that is to the third and the fourth generation, his love and his blessing is to thousands of generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. We can count those generations. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Parents and grandparents down to grandchildren and their children. Oh, God's mercy encompasses thousands of generations. While the iniquity of the workers is to their third and the fourth generation. What a display of God's love, isn't it? What a display of God's love that as a denomination we're going to be selling, celebrating 100 years as a denomination. God is faithful, that's why. Not because we're so good. God is faithful. And he shows that faithfulness when we and our children and our grandchildren after us remain true to him, worship him as he commands us to. Our mouths and lips singing his praises. Our ears hearing his word. Our hands giving of our offerings. And coming in our prayers with praise, but also with absolute need. Dependence as his children. Incorporating us and our children after us in his church to know and love him and serve him. Yes, those are the kingdom boundaries that God sets for proper worship of the God, the worship that he demands of us. Spiritual worship that is arising from our hearts, sincere, not merely outward. Our worship has to be true worship. And that's where I would say that's where church affiliation is important. Never, never would we say we're the only true church or our denomination is the only true church. God's church is found in many different nations and peoples and cultures and denominations. But as you look around where you live, how do you pick what church you're going to go to as a married couple when you want to worship? Is it what pleases me, what is attractive, which kind of fun? Or is it what God demands? True worship. Where is his word most purely proclaimed? Not purely, most purely. Every church has sins. Every preacher has faults. But where is that word most clearly delineated, confessed, written up in their confessions to hold us together to worship the one true God? Amen. Father in heaven, we thank thee for not leaving us to ourselves 
in determining how we want to worship thee. We thank thee that thou hast revealed thyself to us, and thou hast also revealed to us how we are to worship. Then bless our worship, Father. May it be in spirit and in truth. May we hunger and thirst for thy word. May we be blessed by the warmth and the sunshine and the rain of thy word as we walk as pilgrims in this world. For thou, O Lord, thou alone art worthy of our worship. Amen. Bibles again to the prophecy of Isaiah. And in order to understand our text in chapter 25, we're going to read chapter 24 also. Isaiah 24 and 25. Behold... The Lord maketh the earth empty, and maketh it waste, and turneth it upside down, and scattereth abroad the inhabitants thereof. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the servant, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so also the borrower. As with the taker of usury, so with the giver of usury to him. The land shall be utterly emptied and utterly spoiled. For the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourneth and fadeth away. The world languisheth and fadeth away. The haughty people of the earth do languish. The earth also is defiled under the inhabitants thereof because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore hath the curse devoured the earth, and they that dwell therein are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned and few men left. The new wine mourneth the Vine languisheth, all the merry-hearted do sigh. The mirth of tabrets ceaseth, the noise of them that rejoiceth endeth, the joy of the harp ceaseth. They shall not drink wine with a song, strong drink shall not be bitter to them that drink it. The city of confusion is broken down, every house is shut up, that no man may come in. There's a crying for wine in the streets. All joy is darkened. The mirth of the land is gone. In the city is left desolation, and the gate is smitten with destruction. When thus it shall be in the midst of the land among the people, there shall be the shaking of an olive tree, and as the gleaning grapes when the vintage is done. They shall lift up their voice. They shall sing for the majesty of the Lord. They shall cry aloud from the sea. 
Wherefore glory, glorify ye the Lord in the fires, even as the name of the Lord God of Israel in the isles of the sea. From the uttermost part of the earth have we heard songs, even glory to the righteous. But I said, my leanness, my leanness, woe unto me, the treacherous dealers have dealt treacherously, yea, the treacherous dealers have dealt very treacherously. Fear and the pit and the snare are upon thee, O inhabitant of the earth. And it shall come to pass that he who fleeth from the noise of the fear shall fall into the pit. And he that cometh up out of the midst of the pit shall be taken in the snare. For the windows from on high are open, and the foundations of the earth do shake. The earth is utterly broken down. The earth is clean, dissolved. The earth is moved exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard, and shall be removed like a cottage. And the transgression thereof shall be heavy upon it and it shall fall and not rise again. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall punish the host of the high ones that are on high and the kings of the earth upon the earth. And they shall be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit and shall be shut up in the prison and after many days shall they be visited. Then the moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his ancients gloriously. O Lord, thou art my God. I will exalt thee. I will praise thy name for thou hast done wonderful things. Thy counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. For thou hast made of a city a heap, of a defensed city a ruin, a palace of strangers to be no city. It shall never be built. Therefore shall the strong people glorify thee. The city of the terrible nations shall fear thee. For thou hast been a strength to the poor a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shadow from the heat when the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. Thou shalt bring down the noise of strangers as the heat in a dry place. Even the heat with a shadow of a cloud, the branch of the terrible ones shall be brought low. And in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts Make unto all the people a feast of fast things, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the lees well refined. And he will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all the people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death in victory. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces. 
and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth, for the Lord has spoken it. And it shall be said in that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For in this mountain shall the hand of the Lord rest, and Moab shall be trodden down under him, even as straw is trodden down for the dunghill. And he shall spread forth his hands in the midst of them, as he that swimmeth spreading forth his hands to swim. And he shall bring down their pride together with the spoils of their hands. And the fortress of the high fort of thy walls shall he bring down, lay low, and bring to the ground, even to the dust. Our text is verse 1, and then also verse 9. You have in verse 1, the prophet's response. And then he encourages and he hears the people singing a song. Verse 1, O Lord, thou art my God, I will exalt thee. I will praise thy name, for thou hast done wonderful things. Thy counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. Verse 9, and it shall be said in that day, lo, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him we will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. May the Lord bless his word. Isaiah chapter 24 and the chapters before it present terrible darkness. Darkness which is a picture of the judgment of the Most High God against the nations. Those wicked nations were the various world powers around God's people Israel. And that world power would continue to appear and reappear throughout the ages under different names. At one time it was the name Egypt, at another time it is the name Philistines, at another time the Canaanites, Moab and Edom, Ammon and Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and those evil world powers can also be mentioned and can be added today, Europe, United States, Russia and China. The kingdom of the Antichrist at the end of the world. And if the prophet is going to now bring real comfort to God's oppressed people in this world, it has to know, it has to hear this happy message that one day, one day these world powers will be swallowed up in victory. That is... 
it will be made to pass away with such finality as it is gone forever. So instead of reappearing over and over and over again in different garments, done away with completely. That was the vision given later on to King Nebuchadnezzar and interpreted by Daniel, wasn't it? That huge image that had the four different kinds of metals in it, from gold all the way down to iron with clay. And they all are abolished finally, and the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ grows and grows and grows and is perfectly realized. We have in these chapters a vision of things that shall come to pass in the last day that is in the gospel period of the world. It is a vision that goes to the end of time. The prophet is speaking God's own word here and that is why it is so certain. Because even as we read, thy counsels of old are faithfulness and true. This will take place. The Lord has said it. The Lord has purposed it. The Lord takes this vision of what's going to take place, first of all, in his own time, the nearness. For God's people are going to go into captivity, but they're not going to remain there. Babylon is going to be defeated, and the king of Persia, Cyrus, will again allow the people to go back to their homeland. So that's the very near picture, but it is also then a type, a picture of the far, the far in the distance of when God's people are fully redeemed and delivered from all the evils of this world. And when Christ is sitting on his throne forever and ever. So the prophet sees it in his own time, the near, but then also it pictures the far off. They flow together as really one event. For example, the near is the destruction of the Chaldean world power of the prophet's day. Oh, they are going to be so victorious for a little while, destroying everything in the land of Israel and hauling God's people out of there. But it's going to be followed with the turning of Judah's captivity. They will return. But now the far event, of which the near was just a prophetic type, the final passing away of this world at the appearing of Jesus Christ, and the gathering of his glorious church, culminating in the appearing of the church in glory at the return of Christ Jesus. So these things are set forth in symbolic, in typical language. When I say typical, I don't mean like everything else, but I mean this is a type that is set here which pictures forward to spiritual truths. In the Old Testament, there are persons, there are places, and there are events that actually took place, but they picture a further fulfillment, for the type always has to fail. So we look for something more, something final. 
prophet is speaking the language of his own experience and age and world. But through it, the Lord is speaking of the end of all times. Christ's kingdom. So yes, as we go through this chapter, people do a lot of funny things with these chapters. It's rather obscure at times. But nevertheless, it is fully achieved. It sheds light on the promise and the theme of the book of Isaiah. Israel will be redeemed through judgment. The church is redeemed through judgment. These chapters talk a lot of judgment. Of the world powers that oppressed God's people in the Old Testament. The whole history of God's people is directed by God, who is the God of our salvation. And therefore, God's promise to his people will not fail, but will surely take place. So there in Isaiah 24, in the first 12 verses, you have the devastation of the surface of the whole world. And then in verses 13 through 23, you have the second stage of the catastrophic picture, the destruction of the globe of the earth. But in all the destruction, there are a few people that are not harmed. Who? The remnant, according to election. Look at verse 13. When this shall be in the midst of the land among the people, There shall be the shaking of an olive tree. And as the gleaning grapes when the vintage is done. Can you see that picture? Nowadays, big machines coming and shaking fruit trees and the fruit drops off. But there's always a couple apples or other pieces of fruit still hanging on the branch. Or as those who were gathering the grapes pull the majority of the grapes off the vines and make fine wine out of it, but there's a few grapes missed, still hanging on those vines. And that is a picture of God's people. Yes, there's going to be a shaking, a shaking of this world and all its kingdoms. The comfort is in the midst of that. There are those who remain there as God's people. And they are going to be taken to glory. They are the ones in verse 14 through 16 who sing praises unto God and they glorify him. Chapter 24, verses 14 or 15 and 16. From the uttermost part of the earth we have heard songs. Even glory to the righteous. That song is heard to the utmost of the earth. A song of praise for deliverance. And that's what we have in our two texts this morning, or this evening. Verse 1 is now the response of the prophet who brings this word of God to God's people. And then verse 9, there is heard the song of God's people when this this message comes to them and they are comforted. The 
beautiful celebration of Zion. Boys and girls, the word Zion stands for the church. It's a beautiful celebration of Zion. It's a God-glorifying song. It's a very humble song. It's thirdly, a hopeful song. God has done wonderful things. Israel redeemed by judgment. Let's begin then with a God-glorifying song. Isaiah says, verse 1, O Jehovah, thou art my God, I will praise thy name. Verse 9, God's people are encouraged to say, they encourage one another, and it shall be said in that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. You got the singular, you have the plural. There is, beloved, a strong desire by the psalmist, by the prophet, but also then by God's people. There's a strong desire to magnify God's name. God's people fasten their attention upon their God. They say, this is the one who was promised. This is the one who is now here on whom we have hoped and we have waited. This is the one of whom we have spoken. He's here. Oh, look. Oh, look at the glory of our covenant God. Standing in amazement. Filled with confidence. That every one of God's people will praise him and acknowledge his glory. So to what are they pointing as they stand in amazement at their God? What are they pointing? They're not pointing at his being because as we heard this morning, he is an invisible spirit. He, he is spirit. We can't see him with our eyes. No one is able to see him. Not even Moses was able to see his face. They're pointing not to an image of God. As we read in Psalm 115, verse 8, those who make them, that is images, are like them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. If that image is just like us, well then, this is all a lie. Then there's fallibility. Then there's ugliness. We saw this morning that image making and image worship are wrong. No, we cannot represent the heavenly Father, our God, in a creaturely way. Then there's no glory. But rather, God's people are pointed to something that can clearly they can recognize and see God at work. In the Old Testament, there are all these things that are spoken of in the first eight verses of this chapter. What do they behold in their day? Over and over and over again, the enemy defeated. God's people delivered. 
And they are now standing on Mount Zion where the temple is and God has prepared for them, verse 6, a great feast. And it looks further than that. It shows God, the barrier between Israel and the other nations, broken down. The Lord has taken his reign in Jerusalem and the Lord provides a banquet for all is of his grace. A feast. Even as we read in Isaiah 24, verse 23, the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion. The nations come. The nations come because they cannot find blessing in themselves and they can't even find blessing in Israel until God establishes eternal reign in Zion. And no nation will be excluded. They are all included. God's kingdom will be established in this mountain in Zion. Zion who was before so many times so insignificant and despised by the nations is going to be the seat of God's reign. They look at his work. So if we look at now what is set here, we have to look at that word fulfilled initially and then also typically in the Old Testament and then in the New Age or the New Testament age. Isaiah 25 is clearly talking about the land of Canaan, earthly Jerusalem, earthly Zion, and her earthly enemies that surrounded her on all sides. Assyria took away the northern tribes. They are not going to return. But for the sake of David and God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God's people, Judah, is going to be brought back to Jerusalem. And when God's people come back from Babylon, a feast is prepared there and the kingdom is restored. Earthly worship is restored. Jerusalem is rebuilt. But all that Old Testament that is, takes place about 500 years before Christ comes, all that fulfillment is only initial and in type. In other words, it does not embrace all peoples then yet, does it? So it's only a limited fulfillment in the Old Testament. But the type is filled in the New Testament. It is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and the kingdom prepared there in Christ Jesus. How can we point to our great and glorious God? Jesus Christ says to his disciples and to Philip in particular. In John 14, when Philip says to the Lord, Lord, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. How did Jesus respond? Have I been so long time with you and yet thou hast not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me, he hath seen the Father. Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? Believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. So what 
Isaiah sees taking place for Israel with their captivity in Babylon, and they come back to their land, and worship is again started, is only the initial fulfillment of what he is saying here. And it fails because the nations don't embrace the faith. They hate still God's people. And so it looks forward there to the New Testament. It looks forward to Pentecost, doesn't it? God prepares a feast for his people in his suffering and his death and in his resurrection. It is a feast. The feast is a picture of God's covenant and the fellowship of his covenant. Jesus Christ, through his crucifixion and resurrection, delivers his people from their enemies, sin, Satan, and death. And Jesus Christ, as he sat down many times with sinners and publicans, he sits down as a friend with his friends. God eats and drinks with his people. It is Christ Jesus that gives righteousness and truth and holiness and knowledge and wisdom and redemption and eternal life to his people. Think of the Lord's Supper that we celebrate you and I as God's people dine with our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the, the host. We are his guest. And we have lovely, lovely fellowship with our Lord where he feeds us himself and strengthens us. So you have deliverance from captivity, a picture then of what takes place in the New Testament in Christ Jesus in his first coming, suffering and dying and rising from the dead. <coughs> Pentecost, when the nations come flowing into the church. But the ultimate fulfillment still lies in the future, doesn't it? When death is swallowed up in victory. When God will wipe away all tears from our eyes. When God removes the reproach of his people forever and ever. And when we will dwell with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. How are we to respond to that gospel? How are we to respond to that promise, to that prophecy? It must be. By God's grace, it will be. Though this God is our God. You see, we can point to the image of God, that image in Christ Jesus. He who has seen Christ Jesus, as he set forth in his word, he who has seen Jesus Christ has seen the God of their salvation. We express now, and we will in the future, Praise to our God for who he is and what he has done. For our salvation and our deliverance is all of God. In his saving work, God's divine attributes shine brightly, don't they? His love, his power to deliver, 
his wisdom, his righteousness, his holiness, his truth, his faithfulness, his love, his mercy, his grace. How does Jeremy the prophet put it in the book of Lamentations? This I call to mind. Therefore I have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And so Jeremy the prophet says, The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. In that little passage, we hear, don't we, many of the same words that Isaiah way earlier brings in this prophecy. This Jesus Christ is God revealed to us. And he is revealed to us in the scriptures as they are preached and in the sacraments as we partake of them. We behold the God of our salvation, the God who reconciles us to himself. We recognize the God who is going to bring judgment to this wicked world, but he will save his people. Oh yes, it is the Lord God who in Christ Jesus has prepared for us a feast of fat things. The word fat things, boys and girls, means nourishing things, abundant things, salvation, eternal life. Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him. Yes, Israel in the Old Testament could say those words for 4,000 years. They were waiting for that seed of the woman who would come and deliver them from the crushing power of Satan. Satan always nipping at the heels of God's people to hurt them. 4,000 years they waited for that man-child that would be born who would crush the head of Satan. You and I, you and I look backward and we look forward. We look back to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but we also look forward, don't we? And we are waiting and we are waiting now some 2,000 years almost for the coming again of our Lord Jesus. God glorifying because it pictures to us our God who through the way of sin and grace, through the way of death and resurrection, bestows his covenant of friendship and fellowship with his people. Verse 6. And in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the lees well refined. What a feast. Meat with fat marbled through it, delicious. Wine taken by the goblet and enjoyed. 
communion with our God. God glorifying this God is our God. Notice second of all then, a God glorifying song by a humble song. God's people say, he will save us. Notice the words of that short little statement. He will save us. First of all, that word, he. For salvation is from beginning to end the work of God, isn't it? He will save us. That salvation is God's work for us. And it is God's work in us. And it is all and only the work of God in Christ Jesus. Now you say, Pastor, you mentioned two things. It's God's work for us and it is God's work in us. What's the difference? The theologian John Murray wrote an excellent book. It's entitled Redemption. Accomplished and applied. Redemption accomplished and applied. What is accomplished? God's work for us is his eternal purpose to save a people through the sending of his son Jesus Christ into the world. Yes, 4,000 years waiting for that fulfillment of that promise. And we read in the scriptures when the time was fulfilled, she brought forth a son. God eternally gave his son a people to save. God gave his only begotten son. And that son, as an obedient servant, came down from heaven in the likeness of our sinful flesh in the fullness of time. And all of his life, he worked for us. That is, he suffered for us God's wrath as he stood in our place, as he stood as our Savior. Not only all of his life, but then especially at the end of his life here on earth, as he suffers there in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he looks at that work he has to do for us, where God is going to forsake him. And the cruel cross of Calvary where he willingly pours out his life for us. It was a work for us because he finished paying the price for our redemption. And what a cost it was. He satisfied God's wrath. He satisfied God's justice. For God said the soul that sinneth it shall die. God's a holy, righteous God. He cannot tolerate sin. And there on the cross, we hear our Savior's beautiful words. It is finished. His work for us is finished in that he defeated the power of sin, Satan, and death. And he paid in full God's justice. How beautiful. Oh, he's still working, isn't he? Don't get me wrong. His work of suffering for our sins is finished. 
His work of paying for our sins is finished. I are on the cross. But as the risen Lord, he ascends into heaven and people of God, beautifully he continues to work our saviors in heaven, interceding for us. Isn't that beautiful? As he interceded for Peter, because Peter was going to deny the Lord, he says, Peter, I prayed for you. Your Savior is praying for you now. Your Savior is in heaven preparing mansions for you right now. Your Savior is coming again to take all of his saints home with him in the new heavens and the new earth. So you have Christ's work for us or God's work for us in Christ Jesus. But now the question comes... How does Jesus Christ, who is now in heaven, apply those benefits and those blessings to us today? How does he do that? And the answer is, by his Spirit. That is Christ's work in us, by the Spirit. For the Holy Spirit was given to Jesus in his ascension into heaven, and the Spirit then never called it before, becomes the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit that's going to testify to Christ. The Spirit that's going to cause us to cling to Christ and have salvation in Christ. What is God's work in us? By the Spirit of Christ, God works in us a godly sorrow unto repentance. Even the world can be sorry for their sins just like Judas was because of the consequences. But it is the Spirit of Christ that works in us a godly sorrow unto repentance of our sins. It is God's Spirit working within us that gives us faith and strengthens our faith. For the call of the gospel is repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And it is God in his spirit who works that sorrow in our hearts and gives us that faith to believe in Jesus Christ. It is that spirit of Christ working within us that gives us the new life or the new heart or what's called regeneration, life from above. It is the work within us whereby the Spirit turns us from our sins to Christ Jesus, calls us from the gospel and converts us, turns us around. It is God in his Spirit that whispers in our ears, causes us to effectually know, experience, that though our sins are many a number, they are all blotted out. They are forgiven that we are righteous in Christ Jesus. It is that spirit working within us that we hate sin, we flee from sin, and we strive to be more and more obedient to our God, looking forward to that day when there will be no more sins in us. It is by that spirit that we Strive to live obediently for God's glory. 
And it is God's work within us that sustains that new life by feeding us Christ Jesus, crucified and risen again. And it is by that Spirit that God in Christ takes his saints home to himself. Preserved through this pilgrimage where we have fought the good fight and we run the race and a crown of glory is given unto us. Now notice that little word in the song that we sing. He, he who began the work of salvation in us will surely finish it. He, God glorifying. It is a humble song, isn't it? Because we're talking about our need. Salvation is all of God. He will save us. Notice those words. How humbling. We need to be saved. Do you realize that of yourself? Whether you're older or young, we need to be saved. At times we might look down our noses at the heathen around us and the ungodly things they do and we might be tempted like the Pharisee to say, I thank God that I'm not like that. I was raised in a Christian home and I went to a Christian school and I belong to the church. <clears throat> what a fine fellow I am. No, we need to be saved. And now look at the beautiful song that we sing. He will save us, not he'll try to save us, not he wants to save all people, not he will make salvation possible if only you're willing. Leave us out of it. This is our God. He will save us. A humble song. That our salvation is all of God's work. There is nothing that we do in it. There is nothing that makes us worthy of that great salvation. We are no better than others of ourselves depraved. Salvation is all of God. And in our believing song, we sing then of the certainty of that salvation. He will save us. Our salvation is not dependent upon puny man or what he does. But we humbly acknowledge he will save us because he is the God of our salvation. And not one, not even one soul that has been given to the Son by God the Father in eternity will be lost, but will certainly be saved. And that's why Isaiah, as he begins this chapter, his own testimony is, thy counsels of old are faithfulness and true. God determined in eternity, and God spoke it to Adam and Eve, and throughout the Old Testament, 
save you. Even as Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer, we find it in John 17, verse 12. Jesus says, I preserved them when I was here on earth with them, but Jesus says, I'm now going to go to my Father in heaven. Father in heaven, preserve them. Preserve them in this world. Preserve them through their pilgrimage so that they will be saved. Jesus prays there in that prayer effectually for all those who would believe through the preaching of the word. Isaiah 25, verse 9, this is the Lord. Boys and girls, if you look at the text that's written on the top of your outlines, this is the Lord. The Lord is in all capital letters. In other words, this is Jehovah. This is Jehovah, the great I am. And in that name, he says, I am the faithful one. I am your covenant God. That covenant life that God has within himself, he has chosen us that we may share in that life. What a spiritual feast God has prepared for us. By faith we eat and we drink Christ Jesus and he is the strength of that new life within us and he renews that strength within us. A humble prayer. Because finally, notice how we sing in verse 9. We have waited for him. And it shall be said in that day, lo, this is our God, we have waited for him. And he will save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him. When something is repeated like that, it is done so for emphasis. That Old Testament church waiting there for 4,000 years, that promise coming to them in the types and the shadows and the promises. And now the church in the New Testament. We are living in the fullness of time. Lo, this is our God. He has come to us. He is with us now by his spirit. And he is coming again in glory. We've waited 2,000 years. While the world is growing increasingly dark and wicked... And we see all kinds of signs of Christ coming, don't we? In the judgments that are coming upon this wicked world. The storms, the fires, the snow, the rain, the floods. All these things picture of Christ coming in judgment on a wicked world and the kingdoms of this world. Whether it be Europe, whether it be United States, whether it be China or Russia. All these kingdoms will be removed because they are enemies of God in Christ and they are enemies of the church. And especially in the end times when the man of wickedness, that is the Antichrist, comes. This world will show its hatred for the church. Hardly can anyone be saved during those days. But as we read there, in chapter 24, 
They will be like the olives still hanging on the tree when the tree has been shaken. And they'll be like the few grapes still on the vine when they have already been gleaned for vintage. We wait. A strong desire. A longing born out of our love for him and what he has done for us. And a longing because of our absolute need. We are weary and tired in this world as we fight the sin within and the sin without. The burden of guilt that we carry at times, we lay down at the cross. We wait. Not indifferent. Not unenthused. Not, ho-hum, yeah, okay, he's going to maybe come again, but hopefully not too soon because I still want to enjoy my life here in this world and the things that I've accumulated. We wait in a full expectation because we love him, the bridegroom. Because we have a hard time waiting as the world grows darker, the enemies increase. This is a desire of all of our hearts. So that we pray, as we find in the scriptures, the bride with the Spirit say, What? Come. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. That brings me to my third point. Ours is a God-glorifying song. It is a very humbling song. It is thirdly, a hopeful song. Looking forward. In Isaiah's day, and now still today, in 2024. Yes, Jesus has come, but he is coming again in glory. And that is always the attitude of God's people, confidence in their hope. When we speak biblically of hope, we're not talking about the kind of hope that we might have. I might hope that it would be 80 degrees tomorrow and nice and sunny. Foolish hope. But the hope in the Bible is a certainty. It's been promised to us. Confidence. Because we hold fast to his word. Jesus said, I am coming again. I am coming soon. And that was the testimony, wasn't it, of the angels to the disciples when they saw Jesus going up into heaven. The same Jesus you will see coming again in glory. A glad hope. He has saved us. And we are thankful for that great salvation. Notice our text says here, we will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Yes, not only because he works it from beginning to end, but deeper. God works in his people to share in the blessedness of his covenant life. Now already, we by faith hear him in his word. We speak to him in songs and in prayers. Beautiful covenant life dialogue in our worship services, isn't it? Do you see that? As a young man and a young woman in love like to speak to each other. 
so also we with our Christ. Christ sets forth himself in his word. He speaks to us comforting words and we speak back in our songs, in our prayers, in the giving of our gifts, in our hearing of his word. That is a foretaste. Our worship here is a foretaste of our final blessedness. What we have every Sunday in the preaching and the sacraments is a foretaste of what's going to be ours. And then I shake my head at times when I think of those who hate going to church, hate going to worship services. Are they going to look forward to heaven? But that's still in part, isn't our fellowship with God. Now there's still sin in our lives. We're still here on earth and the bridegroom's in heaven. We expect the perfecting of our faith. And we expect the coming of our full salvation. When there will be no more temptation. When there will be no more sin. When there will be no more suffering or pain or sorrow or death. Yes, we look forward as we read in the passage when all our tears are washed away. Hope looks forward to the future. Are you, beloved, are you by faith looking forward full of hope? It is a joyful hope. Notice in the passage, we will be glad and we will rejoice. To be glad means that we have a joy that shines forth from our face and from our lives. To rejoice means that there is a joy that causes us to leap and to dance. It means that we go about in our lives not with long, sad, sour faces. God is not glorified with that kind of behavior. Not those who go around and say, I have never done anything good in my life. Not those who keep on saying, what a wretched sinner I am. All that might be true. God is glorified in the great hope that expects the Savior to come again singing. Singing of that Lord. For in that day we look and we wait and we live in a lively expectation. The day of full salvation is coming soon. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation, freely given to us. Amen. Father, we thank thee for this beautiful comfort. For just as things looked very dark, in the prophet Isaiah's days. Even dark for the church, because of her sins, she would go into captivity. There is the comfort of salvation, of deliverance. And we thank thee that in the darkness of this sinful world and the sins that are still within us, the Jesus who came and paid for all of our sins, removed them, he's coming again. And he will take us up into the new heavens and the new earth. So, Father, we again pray. The bride prays for the bride, bridegroom. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Full of joy. Amen.